before coming down here, I, uh, um, I was talking to uh, the uh, uh, humorist and radio essayist and fellow Canadian David Rakoff, and I was telling him about how I was going to be. We were doing a sketch for my radio show Wiretap about where he was claiming that the more that he drinks, the more charming he gets, and we were going to put this to the test. Um, <laughs> with disastrous results, of course, um, where he becomes more belligerent and repentant. And anyway, but um, what, when uh, we started doing it, the tape was rolling, and I told him about how I was writing this thing to come down for the Third Coast, and I was concerned because I felt like uh, I'm going to be talking to serious people, radio reporters and, you know, documentarians and, you know, serious people. And, you know, when essentially what I do is uh, I make radio dramas, and at, at which point he said, I'm going to stop you right there. I'm going to stop you right there. What? what? This is in Chicago. I would, I would simply advise you to uh, use the American and or British pronunciation of the word D-R-A-M-A. Drama. No. Drama. Drama. Yeah. You will, just, you will just throw them from the roller coaster if you say drama. You will lose them almost immediately. They will, they will think he said drama. Well, I mean, they know that I'm Canadian, so, I mean, maybe they'll yeah, find... Yeah, but of all the many charming Canadian pronunciations in the world, mm-hmm. that's not one of them. Nor is pasta. They, don't, they wouldn't find that a little exotic? Yes, but exotic in all its sort of icky, ethnocentric, uh, 19th century anthropologist assumption kind of ways. Oh. Do you know what I mean? They would think that you were kind of lesser, less intelligent than you actually are. Right. Can you say drama trippingly off your tongue? Try it. Drama. Yeah, it's it's. No. I'm gonna forget. I mean, I'm not gonna. Then be what I would about advise you to say is uh, something along the lines of like, I don't know why I'm here at a reporting, you know, essentially a radio documentary festival, because what I essentially do are little radio plays. So just avoid. Yeah. Uh, avoid the drama. Yeah. Avoid the word drama. It's the way. It's the way. Like when someone says um, instead of whore, they say whore. Yeah, that's off-putting. Doesn't it make you think that? Yeah, that they come from an inbred population who've been, you know, drinking the local bilge water and thereby trace metals and all that. And you think? And you think this is comparable? No, I mean I'm having a completely. I, you know, it's embarrassing because I'm obviously having a completely classist and self-loathing response to all this. Yeah. Uh, don't listen to me. But don't know. I listen to me. Listen to me. Don't say drama. I'm gonna. All right. I mean, I'm gonna. Yeah. Uh, it it sounds it sounds sort of small town, and there's some charm there. Yeah. But with all those small town values. Right. Oh God! Don't get me started on small town values. No. Sorry, but that's that's just my little bit of advice to you. Anyway, so that yeah, David Rakoff. Um, uh, I initially wanted to talk to you from notes and sort of wing it, but as I started to think things through, I saw that I, I think best when I write things out, so as a result, I've written out everything I'm going to say. In fact, I'm, I'm even reading to you right now, um, and even now. Um, I stand before you on stage, and again, I th- I, when I was writing this, I thought there was going to be a stage. <laughs> which I found helpful <laughs> to my process. I was imagining like radio producers moshing. Um, 
I stand before you as a radio producer and writer who isn't very good at coming up with stories per se, and I'm admitting this in the hope that the hundreds, yeah, again, I was, I, I thought there was gonna be like a, a, a stadium seating kind of, uh, anyway. Um, uh, in the, right, I was imagining, okay. Um, uh, th that you might somehow take comfort in the fact that other producers in other countries have the same problems. Um, I do think that coming up with personal radio stories is hard, so I just wanted to talk about ways to sort of cheat by thinking conceptually and using humor and even employing techniques of radio drama, all in the service of applying a trade in the personal storytelling um, on the radio, uh, a trade in personal storytelling on the radio without having to resort to drug addiction, serial child siring, road trips or other tricks of the professional radio storyteller. This is sort of a defense of, or maybe just a reminder of the fact that there are other ways of thinking your way into a radio story. And if you're like me and your ideas for stories do not immediately manifest themselves as story stories. In so doing, I wanna try and touch on the pleasures of discovery of uncovering a story as you go along. And just so you don't think me simple, I will also touch on the perils of doing such. But I do want to champion seeing as you go as a form of play and offer a reminder that radio is a good medium for experimentation because of its relative cheapness to produce and how you can often do it alone so as not to get all hearts of darkness. I think there are certain kinds of radio stories that are not as easily pitchable because they don't exist at the level of their inception as blueprints for larger radio stories. Um, I will call these stories sort of stories, stories that can only exist as the thing in and of themselves, made alive by the characters, the voices, the production style, and the person telling it. For what is the pitchable story of the trial? A man is accused of a crime that he is never informed of. The structure is so piecemeal that because it was published posthumously and was incomplete, there are still arguments about the organization of the chapters. But there's, but there's something about its existence as a document that touches us, and to talk about the trial without taking into account its atmosphere, humor, the odd dream-like texture, the perversity, sexuality, and looking back in hindsight, the propheticness is not to fully get the trial. Similarly, I think that the best radio stories are more than stories, meaning that they could not be translated into other media without losing their itness. They're not blueprints for movies that are missing visuals, Though our enjoyment of them in some part hinges on our facility with understanding movies, the use of music, the more subtle, less telegraphed performance style of the readers, things that we think of as cinematic. And in my experience, radio stories are not easily translatable into written forms. Here's, um, I'm going to play some tape from Scott Carrier um, that I think is greater than whatever a conventional pitch might have communicated. On paper, it might have been presented as the story of a father taking his child for a first swimming lesson but to, to hear it is to realize that it's actually a lot more than that. My wife, Hillary, is a beautiful swimmer, relaxed, graceful. She just sort of slimmers around on top of the water. I didn't know this about her when I met her. I knew she grew up on a lake in New Hampshire, but I had never seen her swim until this summer when we spent a few weeks at the lake visiting her parents. She liked to swim at night, go far out in the darkness, and then turn around and swim back to the light on her parents' house. So this summer we were there at the lake and my wife and her mother decided it was time for our three and a half year old daughter to take swimming lessons. I said, no, she's too young. And my wife said, Mr. Switzer likes to start them at three and a half. 
I said, who's Mr. Switzer? And my mother-in-law said, he gives lessons in the pool next to his house. It's a nice pool. He taught Hillary to swim. He taught all my kids to swim. He went to Harvard and then coached at a private school with a good reputation. I said, oh, well, then of course. So Monday morning we drove to Al and Betsy Switzer's aquatic school in Center Sandwich. The pool was dark blue, the color of glacial ice, 60 feet long and nearly ringed by mothers sitting in white plastic lawn chairs. There were about 18 kids in the pool, and Mr. Switzer, deep tan, square jaw, big muscles, in the pool at the shallow end with the beginners, three boys and three girls hanging onto the edge, crying and shivering, or actually it was just the three boys who were crying. One of them tried to climb out of the pool, and Mr. Switzer pulled him back in, saying, You stay there. You stay right there and don't move from that spot. That, of course, made the other two boys freak out even more. Five, five. Head down. In the lesson, Mr. Switzer took the kids one by one and stood over them, moving their arms and legs through the water. He did this even to the kids who were nearly hysterical. Kick, 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 kick. Then he had them go under the water, keeping their eyes open to look and grab his fingers. Then he had them get out and walk over to the edge where the water was deeper. They were all standing there, shaking, holding their little hands over their little hearts. He was going to make them jump. Now listen, everybody. What you're going to do is you're going to jump to me and I'm going to catch you. All right? I'm going to catch everybody. Stand up, Alice. First, he told my daughter to jump. And she did, and just about landed on his head. She was kind of screwing around and having too much fun. Next, the other two girls, and they jumped pretty easily too. But then the boys, and the boys were afraid. They were just little kids who hadn't learned to hide their fear, what looked like true fear, not some sudden fright caused by a bad dream or a monster movie, but scared, silly panic, their bodies quivering like jello, their faces filled with grief. Um, that's just like, there's a few more minutes, but um, what I wanted to say that is that if Scott Carrier walked in off the street and said he wanted to do a story about his daughter's swimming lesson, it might have seemed like not much. But left in his hands, it becomes a story that encompasses more than could be easily articulated in a pitch. Because of the uniqueness of his voice, it becomes a story about very big things. Even in, the, even in the course of the first three minutes, it touches on marital love, parental love, anxiety about the unknown, of letting your children grow up. In a word, it is literary, but in a way that is unique to radio. It is radio literary. Through the production, we feel as we listen viscerally the terror of being a child, and so we become a little like scared children, learning to swim again ourselves. The sounds touch something primordial, and even though he is only a voice off screen, so to speak, Mr. Switzer is a little mythic, a god that parents sacrificed their children before. He's a beneficent god, but he is also terrifying. Through the writing and the sound production, Mr. Switzer becomes more than a swim instructor. He is a symbol for the way the world is in all its casual, necessary cruelty. Uh, in a similar vein, here's just a few seconds of uh, a story from the, at the very end of um, a story by Demay Roberts, and it's um, she, she's telling the story of her mother's death, and she's reading script about her mother's Buddhism, 
and she throws in one word in the midst of her reading, one three-letter, one-syllable word that has the effect of revealing her personality in a flash, and it does a lot to connect herself with the listener, I think. I'm okay some days, not okay on others. Death is still the short story. The long story is how we live with it, endure it, remember it, and then let go of the pain so we can live again. We interred Mommy's ashes at the Kuan Yin Temple. I take comfort in the Buddha saying, life is suffering, and the key to happiness is that there is nothing to attain in life. Yeah. Let go of the wants and needs and regrets and learn to be happy. It makes her sort of step out of the radio, reach over and grab you by the hand and bring you closer. And to me, the effect is, is poetical and, and, and uh, it has intimacy that, that couldn't translate into other media. So of course, um, without some guiding structural principle, all of this is moot. Uh, I have this, here, here's an exchange between Jimmy Stewart and Ben Gazzara from Anatomy of a Murder. And Stewart plays his defense attorney, and he's preparing Gazzara for court. And I, I don't have tape of this, actually. I was going to just read it, but maybe it would be fun to perform it. Just if, Starley, do you want to play, do you want to play Ben Gazzara to my Jimmy Stewart? Do you, do you want to? Yeah, I always want to play Ben Gazzara. Okay. <laughs> it's just this section here. Um, so here I say... So it's in court. No, this is, I'm just freestyling it here. Uh, Stuart says, you're very bright, Lieutenant, but let's see how really bright you can be. Well, I'm working on it. All right, now because, oh, all right, now because your wife was raped, you'll have a favorable atmosphere in the courtroom. Sympathy will be with you if all the facts are true. What you need is a legal peg so the jury can hang their sympathy on your behalf. Follow me? Uh-huh. <laughs> what is your legal excuse, Lieutenant? What's your legal excuse for killing Barney Quill? I thought there was going to be more for you. That's, that's all there is. <laughs> <laughs> you, made me, you made me stand up and everything. I did. Yeah, thank you, though. Um, good job. Um, so... Uh, this, this is as true for murderers as it is for radio producers. You must have a legal excuse. You can have everything on your side, the music, the jokes, the reading style, but at the end of the day, you need something for the listener to hang their rational legal mind on. Otherwise, it'll be more likely to fail despite all of it, all it has going for it. The legal mind will not allow the heart to be fooled. You need to give the audience some reason to believe that, they are hearing, that what they are hearing is worthy of their attention. Ira Glass once told me something to the effect that moments and scenes can be appreciated in and of themselves, but that the moments that we remember the best years later are the ones that fit into a solid structure. And he pointed to Raging Bull as an example. It is the structuring through editing and writing, all that heavy lifting at the beginning that will often dictate the success or failure of a venture, be it a Hollywood action film with millions of dollars worth of special effects or a five-minute radio story. Better than having a collage of neat things is a point that these neat things are driving towards. But I think that those of us, and I would include myself in this group, that do not have a lot of inherent storytelling ability may not necessarily hatch their radio pieces out of the egg of story, and that inspiration may come from elsewhere. 
Untrapped by the instinctual organic ability that natural storytellers have, I feel like I can come at the problem of story as an afterthought with a weird advantage, unencumbered almost, un able to perceive structure from without. For me and people like me, story structure is more like cracking a mathematical formula that you can later repeat when you get stuck. So while some can spin tales that you can almost hear as fully formed radio stories, my mind usually begins from other starting points. A lot of time my input at This American Life story meetings was limited to wouldn't it be neat if, or I was thinking that it's funny how kind of things. <laughs> much of these weren't stories so much as set pieces, half-baked concepts or riffs, and left to my own devices that might never have taken flight. There needed to be something more, of course, some greater something at stake. And I was lucky to be surrounded by people who could bring a dimension of reality to mere flights of fancy. For instance, an idea I initially had about using radio editing tools to take out all the stutters from a teenager who was a chronic stutterer to allow him to hear the way he might hear himself in his own head took full form when Iris suggested doing that in the service of having him direct an open letter to someone who never had the time to hear him out. At Iris' suggestion, the pizza delivery man um, who he ordered dinner from was chosen as that, as that person. Or the initial idea of doing a whole show based around items found in the Chicago classifieds during the course of a single day only became good once it was filled with actual good stories. Or for instance, for a long time I had this unflagging belief that my friend Josh would be great on the radio. I almost felt like the story he would tell wasn't important. But working for a show like This American Life, a show built on stories, I had to figure out a story that Josh could actually tell. And so a story was created that I largely thought of as a kind of Trojan horse, something that could house what I really wanted to get on the air, which was the comedy of our dynamic, because initially that was what interested me most. So here's a conversation between Josh and me that later became a part of a larger story. But at first, as it initially existed, it was just two guys talking with a hopefulness that the talk could maybe blossom into something more. So here's tape of Josh telling me about the most famous voicemail message ever left in the history of Columbia University. I mean, I, I can imagine you really liking this message. Oh, I see, I see. But you see, I can't imagine it being the kind of thing that, you know, was that like... That your sedate NPR audience would appreciate? No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I mean, it sounds like you got a kick out of it at the time. But I mean... You know, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine it being like an atomic bomb that hit the campus or something. Yeah. See, this is clearly a, another example of, of the failure of your imagination. How many times have I given you ideas that you have uh, naysayed? How many times have I given you gold standard ideas? Josh What's yells at me a lot, funny to America? especially when he yet? thinks I'm not taking his ideas seriously. I'm giving you the when we go out to eat, he yells at me loud enough to make the other patrons turn around and look at us. Sometimes, though, he'll get all unexpectedly silent and just stare out the restaurant window and then turn to me and say something like, wouldn't life be better if there was a big old pig sitting out there by the fire hydrant? Why can't life be more like that? But anyway, to get back to the phone message, the one Josh heard in college, I'm telling you about it not to demonstrate what a slightly misguided, colorful character Josh is, but to chart with honesty the unfairness of my preemptive bitch squeals of doubt. I went to Columbia University in the early 90s, okay, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. When I was there, they had this phone system. I'll just give you a little bit of background, all right, and then I'll cut to the chase. Um, they had this system there called the Rome system, yeah. Rome phone system, R-O-L-M, and you could forward messages to people, okay? You could forward messages to everyone on campus if you wanted, okay? 
So, sort of like 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 a, a precursor to the internet. Yes, like a precursor to the internet. Thank you, Mr. Current Affairs yeah. guy. All right. So, um, so it, it was just it, it was an amazing utility. People could forward all kinds of crazy messages. Yeah. And so one day there was this guy named Fred. Okay. Yeah. And he got this message. Well, his mother left him a message on his answering machine. Okay, and yeah. he forwarded it to I don't know maybe one or more of his friends, and his friends turned around and did a brutus thing. They stabbed him in the back, and they forwarded this message across campus uh, to everyone. Okay, so you want to hear the message? Mm-hmm. All right. So he prefaced it by saying, Wait, "You, you have know, it. You have the message. I do not have the message. I have the message in my head. I'm telling you a story. All right. Okay. All right. So." Uh, the mess- he, he prefaced it by, by some kind of sad little lead-in. In a little voice, he was like, I, th- I think you'd, you'd appreciate hearing this message from my mother. Okay? And then the message played. This was the entirety of the message. Uh, and I'm going to do the voice for you as best I can. You ready? Yeah. All right. Oh, sorry. Uh, more background. He apparently, he had, he had, had a hard, he, he was not a hit with the ladies, Fred. Okay? That's, this is what I was led to understood, led to understand. Okay? Yeah. I'm not sure if this is true or not. Okay. Uh, but he had managed to score a date to go see The Little Mermaid of all movies. Okay, The Little Mermaid. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so this is the message his own mother. Okay, his blood relation leaves for him. Yeah. And I quote: <clears throat> "You and the Little Mermaid can both go f- yourselves. The books you wanted—they're not here. They must be in La Jolla. I'm not gonna wait up all night for you. Goodbye." That's the entirety of it. All right. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a message that his mother left him. That's correct. You catch that part? Yeah. You and the Little Mermaid can both go f*** yourselves. <laughs> I love you, son. Okay? That's gold. But, what, 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 then, what, no, hold on. Yeah. Then, are, are you going to listen? Yes. All right. Then somebody took it. I don't know. Some evil mixmeister genius took it and, 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 and remixed it into a 12-inch dance version. <laughs> All right? You know, you and the Little Mermaid, La Jolla, La Jolla, f*** yourselves, f*** yourselves, they're not here, the book, goodbye, 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 goodbye. And there's other people who, heard, who, who remember it. Are you, are you even listening to a word I just told you? <laughs> this was the, uh, the producers of its day, okay? It, it, it was, everyone heard about it, everyone knew it, everyone had an opinion about it. Every single person who attended Columbia that year would, I guarantee you, they would know what, what I'm talking about. Um, so, what I felt should, should be on center stage was the uniqueness of my dynamic with Josh, and I felt like our relationship, as evidenced through conversation, would form the frame through which the story must be heard. And that would make the story better because the story, I truly believed at the time, was not much of anything. But I also felt that admitting that outright could play into the story itself and thus expand the definition of what the story could be. By including my own doubt, the story pitch, the actual investigative process, and my perception of who the storyteller was, this all made the story richer. And what actually happens, I think, is that the listener ends up rooting for the story. The storiness becomes a foregrounded element of the story, even though at the moment of its inception, the story to me was nothing more than a legal excuse. Um, and then, uh, you know, I get proved wrong. I get my comeuppance, and everyone goes home happy. 
Here's another example. When I stopped producing at This American Life and moved back to Montreal, I found myself not working on the book I was intending to write so much as hanging out with friends in bookstores and cafes and generally wasting time. But what I found myself thinking a lot at the time was that some of the conversations I was having might be entertaining on the radio if I could just find the proper context for them. So again, I sought a Trojan horse, a concept, something fairly universal that hopefully people would be able to relate to. And so I decided to revisit these conversations in the context of regret and how I regret almost everything I say. I would spend an entire day recording my conversations so that I could re-listen to them as a form of therapy, I thought. I thought that by re-listening to my conversations, I could teach myself that even through the benefit of time and a chance at a do-over, I would not necessarily be able to improve upon the things that escape my mouth. So here's tape of me having a conversation in a used bookstore about the Lord of the Rings with a bearded man named Billy. I give you the ring of power, okay? What are you going to do with it, John? What are you going to do with it? No question about it. You wouldn't pull it off. You couldn't pull it off. You'd die. Your soul would be taken. Finished. End of story. You, you wouldn't cut it. You wouldn't cut it on the throne. You wouldn't even be a steward of Gondor. You wouldn't even be one of the Rohirrim, you know, and you want to hold the ring. You can hold the ring, John. Now, if I could have just paused things right here, right at this very moment, paced around a bit, shadow boxed myself towards the right state of mind, I might have found the gumption to say that I didn't even want the stinking ring because all it does is turn you into a pretentious diva anyway. Everyone who holds it becomes Zsa Zsa Gabor. I would have said that even thinking about this ring stuff was for 14-year-old black-hooded goth kids who strap suede pouches of 20-sided dice from their belts as fashion accessories. Instead, I answered this way. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's a good question. I, I don't know. To which Billy replied, You don't know. You don't, you don't, there's even a question? No, Jonathan, you couldn't hold the one ring of power. I, I wouldn't trust you for a second with the ring of power. Not for a second. Then I started to backpedal, saying that he was probably right, that I was ill-equipped to hold the ring. I was weak-willed and had little sense of community. I then said that he, Billy, was probably better suited to the task of ring-bearer. To which Billy responded, I wouldn't touch the ring, John, Okay. Gandalf wouldn't touch the ring. Elrond wouldn't touch the ring. Fools like Boromir tried to touch the ring, but they died. Okay, I cannot handle the ring. I'm not of hobbit stock. I don't have that kind of hardiness. Okay, stop right here. No, Billy, you don't have that kind of hardiness. You wear yellow sweatpants, and your hands are as smooth as peeled tangerines. You possess the unearthly habit of pulling jawbreakers out of your mouth every five seconds to check what color they are. And whenever you burp, you're compelled to simultaneously speak the word Ralph. But if you're standing there with Billy, looking into his eyes, frozen or not, of course you don't say anything so mean, despite the fact that you want to. We all carry the ring around inside of us, and that ring is our capacity for wrongdoing. And both he and I, in some way, wish that this capacity could be removed from within us and pounded out into a shiny ring that could be passed around from person to person allowing us to ease the burden of our urges. Such urges, say, as wanting to voice the really mean things we really think. But in the end, that would be appalling. And rather than voicing any of this, I said instead, Um, I thought... I don't know. 
So in the, in the same way, when I first created Wiretap, I was more uh, interested in creating a forum for personalities that, that I found funny and, uh, and interesting uh, than I was in telling actual stories. But the trick was to forge a context for the personalities to exist because there are only so many stories, big personal stories that a person has. Big personal stories are very rare. So at first I tried developing concepts that would allow people to shine. Eventually these concepts developed into fiction altogether. But at first it began with something like, wouldn't it be neat to hear someone being broken up with over and over? So I called up people that I knew, mainly uh, my friends, and I asked them to break up with me as though we had been going out for years. And what came out was funny, but it was also sort of sad. Um, so again, it's not a story idea, but at least for me it was a context. It was a starting point to build on, to have a series of these and to be able to write around them. So here's my friend James breaking up with me. When we met, I mean, the thing that really struck, struck me about you, it was actually your smile. Oh, yeah. No, I'm serious. Yeah. I'm, I'm serious. You have a really, really amazing smile. And, and like, there's, you, you, you know, you, there's, you have a lot of amazing qualities. I don't know what to say. You know, you, we've had a great time together. We've had a great time, but it's just not, I'm not feeling it. I'm not, it's, at first things seem great. You know, uh, you, you know, you love to, to dance, you know, and it's been very hard for me to find someone who loves dance as much as I do. Yeah. Yeah, and I had, you know, and I, I took those hip-hop dance classes at the Y every single Tuesday night after work for you. I know, but that, well, you tried, you tried, but I mean, this is, this is part of the problem, is you look like you're, like, some kind of retarded monkey when you do it, frankly. Listen, anyway, I don't like, you're a really, really great guy. It's just sometimes you get a bit... Well, it's like touchy-feely or something. Like, I don't know. You just, you just, you touch a lot. And you're always like, if I get two feet away from you, you've got it like you stuck to me, like a, like static cling, like a bounce sheet. You know, I, uh, that party we were at? Yeah. You remember the, yeah. the, the I, house yeah. party a few weeks ago? Mm-hmm. Do you remember? You, you had like two drinks and I'm sitting on a stool. It's a wobbly stool. You come, you insist on sitting on my lap and you fall off. Do you even remember doing that? I remember you, you, you know, you made me feel fat. It wasn't because you're fat. It's not because you're fat. You're just drunk. Drunk and fat. Be- what, because I said your ass didn't fit on my knee? What, that just doesn't mean fat. It means that, it, it means that your ass, your ass is like, uh, just doesn't fit on my knee. You know, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean you're fat. You're so paranoid. Everything I say gets dissected into something that I didn't mean. I thought that you liked our closeness. You know, that was one of the things that you, that you didn't have in your other relationships. You're right. And at first it was great. But, you know, I mean, there's closeness and then there's, you, you actually get in my face. When you talk, you're an extremely close talker. I'm sorry, but you get, like, right in my face. Well, it's intimacy. It's not intimacy. It's, 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 I don't know what the hell it is. You know, one time we were at a party and you were talking to me. You were talking so close to me, so close that I swear to God, a piece of food left your mouth and entered my mouth. It actually left your mouth and entered mine. I tasted it. It was like sausage. I thought it you liked it. It was disgusting. 
uh, when I did this, these, this series of these breakups, it actually ended up really knocking me out by the end of like a couple hours of it unexpectedly. There was one guy who uh, broke up with me and again, these, they're not actors or anything. Um, they're just, they were friends. It was actually, this was for the first episode of the show and it was, it was actually called It's Over, which, uh, which I thought was apt for, uh, for I, I thought it was going to be canceled after one show, so. It, <laughs> so this was a, who was that? That was a friend of mine, this guy James, and I should also say that in real life he's actually a nice man, but I wasn't surprised to see though at the same time that when put into a position where he had to dissolve himself of an emotional attachment, even an imagined emotional attachment, he had the uh, remorselessness of a sociopath. <laughs> and I think every, what, the way that everyone chose to break up with me said something about their personality. Um, Did you script? No. Did you have any ground rules? No, I don't even think so. What did you tell them you wanted to do? I just said, let's break up. <laughs> and that was about it. And some of them, you know, I tried some other things. Like I broke, I did one where I tried breaking up with myself and I wasn't a good enough actor to pull it off. I like the idea of it where I, you know, put myself on different tracks. And I was referring to myself as, as being too clingy and I don't know. Um, uh, and there was one guy who I broke up with who I, I wasn't even aware that we had started, that we had began uh, acting. And he was like, do you know what a postillion is? And I was like, no. And he's like, you know, it's that guy that used to ride on the coaches that would announce where, uh, when they were arriving at the destination to the people inside the, the carriage. And I was like, huh. And then he said, and you know, I've been thinking about um, things lately and I realize, I've been thinking about our you know, friendship lately and I realized that uh, I don't need a postillion in my life, and, or we started by saying, I always thought of you as my pastillion, and I don't need a pastillion in my life. And it just caught me so off guard, like my stomach just twisted, like I actually got that feeling of, I hadn't realized that we were, you know, we were acting. Um, uh, and there was one guy that I spoke to who ended up kind of reading from a script inside of himself, uh, like he ended up saying to me the things that he had wished that he had said to this girlfriend that he, should, that he felt he should have broken up with. Um, so, so again, for, for me, the motivation um, was to, uh, to showcase the unique dynamic that certain people will have when put together. And while radio is a great medium for storytelling, it is also an ideal medium for conversation, for the magic that occurs between individuals. And it's an easy and entertaining fit. Um, here's a couple of conversations I'm gonna play now. Um, uh, the first one is, uh, and I'll play you tape and script from a story that I wanted to do about my dad. And really, when I started off, um, I literally uh, all I all I really had was um, I'd like to do a story about my dad because I think he's entertaining. I think he would be entertaining on the radio because I thought he was an emotional talker and um, he was unselfconscious and he also has like a, an old school kind of Brooklyn accent, which I like. Um, and, and so what I tried to do was insert that into a bigger machine to harness it into some other concept and hopefully lead it somewhere without it all hopefully sounding clumsy and over-labored. So the concept that I came up with was um, that we were gonna have a conversation about different ideas of manliness, uh, some that were generational and some that were just you know my father's ideas. And the, so the underlying question to be pursued, the point to be reached was whether I had conformed to my dad's idea of manliness, uh, and so here's some tape from the story. Do you feel that, that smoking lends a man a certain kind of manliness? Oh yeah, don't forget, we grew up with a certain stereotype when we were young. You might not remember this, but I remember one time we were on our way to, maybe it was a bar mitzvah, 
we stopped at the gas station yeah. to uh, to get some gas, and you picked me up a pack of cigarettes, and you, and you said that it, that it's important for a young man to smoke at a, at a social gathering. How old were you at the time? I was probably about maybe nineteen. Really, I did, eh? Well, because probably at that time that was my way of thinking. You know, why did I start smoking? Not because I enjoyed smoking. The reason I smoked was because I was, first of all, I was, I was never as tall as my friends. I was always shorter for my age. And it made me feel taller. It made me feel as if I belonged. And it gave me something to do with my hands. Wait, how, how, just go back for a second. How did smoking uh, make, make you feel taller? Because older people, at that time, older people were smoking. My father smoked. My brother was smoking. How old were you when you started smoking? Fifteen. So I started at a pretty young age. Wait, if if I was a taller man, would you would you have would you have felt that smoking was was as important? Uh, probably yes. Yeah. 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 But still, during my teen years, on the odd occasion when I did smoke, rather than taking my cues from Humphrey Bogart or Danny Zuko, gritting the butt between my teeth like I meant business, and ashing often with forceful, deliberate taps. I chose to smoke like David Bowie, circa 1972, allowing my cigarette to hang limply from my lips, pretending to be too whacked out on goofballs to care that my ash was six inches long. My obsession with David Bowie, a languidly androgynous glam rocker, wasn't something that troubled my father, so much as it simply wasn't anything he could understand. My father preferred singers like Joe Cocker, men who delivered their lyrics as though painfully screaming them from a locked toilet stall. In his day... Liking someone like David Bowie would have been the domain of degenerate officers in black-and-white movies about Nazis. But even now, whenever I'm over at my parents' and Bowie's on Entertainment Tonight, my father will call me over and say, Your pal's on TV. Now we will both sit there in silence, watching David Bowie, both of us wondering what the other one could possibly be thinking. Um, so, yeah. Um, and here, here's, here's another conversation um, that's between a father and a son, and uh, it's, it's more dramatic. It's, it's, it's also pretty weird. Uh, it doesn't rely on script, and it, uh, it, it kind of feels more dangerous. Um, and uh, I think the conversation is between Larry Block. It's from Joe Frank, and the conversation is, I think, between Larry Block and, uh, and his son, Zach, his teenage son, Zach. Like, I remember one time I had this kind of idea that maybe it would be funny if someone got beaten to death with a jackhammer, all right? That is what I said. This is like, hey, Dad, wouldn't it be funny if someone got beaten to death with a jackhammer? And he, and he, and he, and he got so, like, horribly offended. He went, what is funny about that? There's nothing funny about that, Zach. Everything I say, you take so seriously. You don't understand the aspect of just, you know, meaningless chit-chat. You don't understand the concept of that. You take everything so seriously. It's like you have a sense of humor that it's only when, it, like, you make up the joke or whatever. You, you don't understand when other people are joking. You have, to, you have to lighten up a little. You make a noise. You go, and you go away, and you, walk, and you start walking ahead of me. But only very infrequently do I do that. No, you do it all the time. You do it twice within yeah. the hour I arrived in Seattle. No, wait, wait, wait. If you're talking about yesterday when we got out to this uh, uh, ground... No, I am not talking about the freaking hike. I'm talking about within the 10 minutes which I arrived in Seattle. And you told uh, me that this guy had your bong and wouldn't give it back to you. 
why do you feel as though alcohol is like the wonder serum or something? What makes you think that this is like the thing that's gonna like like make your own ideas of how, of how your life should be led seem you know more uh, cohesive? You know, with your, the situation you're in. I don't understand that. That's not why I drink, Zach. I I drink because it uh, it just takes the edge off uh, my thought process of, of you know of being too aware of what's uh, of my pain in the world. I find drinking quiets down the my mind in, in a sense, and I'm not so aware of the you know the things that I have to deal with, my age, my you know uh, lack of success to a certain extent. When I'm drinking, I don't care about that so much. You know, I tend to focus in increasingly more on my own my own writing. You know, and I celebrate myself. You know, as, as Walt Whitman said, and that's what I find about uh, alcohol that I like. I just think it's weird how when you get drunk or if you've been drinking excessively, it's just weird how it's like, it's almost like you think you're the most like, you know, you're like the messiah. You think you like, you have like, you're, like what you're saying is so important and so brilliant. And nobody, everyone's too nice to tell you that you sound like an idiot. The alcohol makes you a volatile person. It makes you really cantankerous. You know, it's hard to deal with you. I don't like that. I think it's ridiculous. I think alcohol is, is, is ridiculous. Well, I'm only saying, Zach, that it's nice to know things about the Hutus and the Tutsis. It's not like you no, have to No, no, you said it's nice to know things about what's going on in the world. And no, I know what's going on in the world. I, know. I just never heard of these crazy African tribes that, that hack each other up with machetes. I didn't know about these people. Well, I understand, and there's no reason that you had to know about them. But that just because I use them in a poem doesn't mean it's gibberish. Just because you're saying because you never heard of them. And I thought they were valid to use in a poem. That it's a sign of being drunk. That's not but fair. you were drunk. I was not drunk. You drunk half a bottle of scotch. But not even half a bottle. Yes, you did. So the the, uh, the conversation here isn't driving towards an explicit um, didactic uh, point or message. Um, a little bit, it, uh, it it just is what it is, and it's and it's compelling on that level, um, and it's more elliptical than than a lot of things you hear on the radio. Yeah. Did Dad you know what, I honestly, after I played this yesterday and I got to thinking about, I don't even know if it's real. Oh. <laughs> I mean, because Joe Frank's stuff is, it could go, do, do, you, do you have an idea, John? No. Yeah, I mean, it could be a, a father and a son having this a straight out conversation. Uh, I'm sure that they know that they're being recorded. But I mean, there's a lot of art to it. And there's, uh, um, uh, so, um, so I, but I've found that like being short on time and, and, and resources um, that uh, sometimes in, in looking for an ending to a thing um, that, that it's helped, I mean, from, I'm able to borrow from uh, elements of radio drama um, and that comes in handy, um, case in point. I was having a conversation with my father on tape a few weeks ago where he was talking about a trip he took this summer to Barcelona it was the first time he'd been there in over 50 years when he was stationed overseas in the army. And for as long as I can remember, he'd always dreamt of going back. So I asked him, how is Barcelona? It's changed, he said sadly. Well, what did you expect, I asked. People, places change in a half a century. I know, he said, but I guess I was looking for closure, like with a past love. Among my father's complaints about Spain was its utter lack of Spaniards how Barcelona was now loaded with tourists. When I asked him if anything was still the same, he said the statue of Christopher Columbus was still there, and he enjoyed sitting under its shade until skateboarding teenagers drove him away. 
All in all, though, he said, he had a pretty good time dining at the Hard Rock Cafe and Pizza Hut almost every night. I think at one point I was asking him about that and he was like, yeah, it was pretty much, he's, he was like, yeah, I think the ketchup might have been a little spicier, but it was, it was pretty much the same. And then he reached a point, a legal story point, but it still felt a little dramatically dull, so I employed fiction as a kind of deus ex machina. So here's my father reaching a point and then a little extra help from my mother. You know, we both changed. Barcelona changed and I changed. I mean, I, I don't have any interest in the same things I had when I was single. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking for the same things. I'm not looking for the same kind of thrills and entertainment. Bye. What? I need you to come up and do it. All right, just a second. I'm coming. Well, All right, John. All right. She got an olive stuck in a bathtub drain. How, how did how did how did she get an olive stuck in that? You gotta ask her that. What happened? What were you doing? Eating olives in the bathtub? Don't worry what I was doing. Unbelievable. All right, Dad. I'll, 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 I'll talk to you later. Okay, Johnny. All right. I'm coming up. Okay. 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 Bye, Dad. Bye, Johnny. Bye. <laughs> um, so, I mean, what was nice was, I mean, you could, because, you know, the best kind of tape is tape where there's actually something happening on tape. So... To be able to create that, like I mean, he's you know, so he's making the point about how he's his life has changed. He's not single anymore, but to actually show that um, in the tape was kind of a nice uh, was a nice opportunity, and it felt like it kind of like he reached his point about how you know not only had Barcelona changed, but he changed, and then that kind of cut the treacle a little bit, which I I feel is good. Um, uh, I remember hearing Barrett Goulding say that. He wants his stories to aspire towards a condition of music that uh, to hopefully be as pleasing to the ear as music. Um, and this is something I often think about. In fact, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll play you the actual song that I aspire towards. Nazareth. Um, I love that part in the when like it just sounds like he's turning on the radio in the in the middle of his own song. Um, so I think the conversation comes close to being its own kind of music and its own kind of waltz between two people. Maybe conversation is more like poetry in its musicality, while an interview with its goal orientedness is more like prose. So in conclusion, um, I guess the point of all this was just to try and remind everyone, myself included, that there's room for a lot of different aspirations within the world of radio, even grand literary type ambitions. The ambition to make a kind of music and that there's more than one way to do things and the goal should be to try and discover the way that works best for you. I was recently reading an interview with Paul Oster where the interviewer was asking him where he gets his ideas And for authors, there's a kind of dialogue that is allowed where they can talk about such things as inspiration, what they're trying to do, and other kinds of airy-fairy stuff. Without going overboard, I feel like our ambitions as radio producers can be discussed in a similar way that writers discuss theirs. And we may not exactly have our cahier de cinema yet, 
but we can still pursue the ineffable, the sublime, and just have all the rights of discussion that other media have. And for all the rules that we know and respect and work with each day, we still have to remember that there is the X factor. There's still the unaccountable ingredient, not in the rule book. There's the magic. And I think it comes about when we give ourselves the chance and space to be free, to be ourselves, and to be creative. And to keep in mind just a little bit that no one watches a Marx Brothers movie for Zeppo's singing or the plot. They watch for the magic. That's it. Um, Uh, any questions? Anything to, to talk about? Um, from a practical uh, point of view, um, what would you do with the last conversation with your father you have played to us? I mean, would you put it on the radio in any form? And if yes, then where? The, 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 what are you talking about? The uh, Barcelona. Oh, that was on the radio. That was in which in which slot? I mean, in which? In in context of what? In yes. Um, the con well, I, I this particular show I did uh, was with uh, script and tape. The script was basically it was like a straight ahead journal of my week. Like Monday I did such and such. Tuesday blah blah blah. Wednesday I saw my dad. Or sorry, we talked on the phone, and I and and because uh, he had just gotten back from Barcelona. In fact, the stuff that I was reading to you, uh, leading up to the to the tape, was the actual tape was was the actual script that I used in the radio show. And prior to that, you know, the little the thing with my mother, there was a whole conversation that took place that led to that point that he was making about how he had changed along with Barcelona. So unbelievably, that was actually on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is the um, like a topic of a show ever driving the recordings that you're doing, or does it always start with, you know, you want to have a conversation, you want to record a conversation with this person, then you'll figure out a way It's a little bit of, uh, a little bit of both. Uh, sometimes I'll just start, like recently I did, uh, this is kind of like such a totally grain of a weird idea that ended up blossoming into a whole show, which was that, you know the, 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 the tape that I played you from the, the, the phone message, Columbia, the, with my friend Josh? Um, there's a line in it where I'm repeating uh, in like that deadpan kind of way that I do, the message, uh, the books are in, the, I, don't, I can't find the books, they must be in La Jolla, that, uh, that this, um, I don't know how you would describe them, like an, uh, an avant-garde uh, electronica kind of band called The Books, do you know them? So, someone brought to my attention that they had actually sampled uh, my voice uh, uh, in one of their songs, so I, and I, I had this idea in my notebook uh, of, I thought it would be really funny to call, to have my mother um, ask her to introduce me at a speaking event and continually up, up, keep on upping the ante until I'm making the introduction more and more ridiculous and to see what her breaking point was. Because it just started off with, I want you to go up to the podium and say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, my son, Jonathan Goldstein. But by the end of it, I kept on upping the ante until the point where it was, um, like she was on bended knees with her arms spread out beside the podium, and, and she just kept on going along with it. But anyway, but the, the, the point was, though, I was supposed to introduce the band The Books, and I kept on ref, you know, referring to them as this band that I had jammed with, that I had collaborated with, even though they had only used like a three-second sample of my voice in one of their songs. Um, so, so, yeah, so I, so I just had that little idea of my mother introducing me, and then I thought, well, I can attach it to this books thing, 
but then it, it, it kept on, there was, there was more ideas off of it. Like the next thing was, um, man, I'm trying to remember, and I just did this one. Um, there was another concept that I had been carrying around for a while. Oh, yeah. Where I had to cancel plans with my uh, goddaughter, my nine-year-old goddaughter, in order to introduce the band. So anyway, it just kept on going into, what was the question? I, oh, right, 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 how they, how they, how they, uh, how they take form. Yeah, it's like recently, the thing I was talking to you uh, about David Rakoff with playing this guy who keeps, who insists that the more drunk he gets, the more charming he becomes. Um, I had another story that I wanted to do, which wasn't even much of a story, uh, where my friend's calling me up and I have a hangover and he just keeps on uh, exacerbating the, the hangover. So I had those two and then I thought I could do a whole show just about getting drunk. And so that, that kind of came together. It's dictated by time and it's trying to, you know, throw things together. Yeah. Um, all your examples are really personal, you know, again, some other people that you play. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if there are ways to apply, there are great strategies that you present. Are there ways to apply them to things that aren't personal or where you just, you, you cut yourself out of it and you just get other people to do it or? Uh, I'm, how do you mean to get other people to do? Well, I mean, you insert yourself into right, everything right, that right. you describe. Yeah, yeah. Able to hear your show, but yeah. um, I don't know if there are shows that you do where you don't insert yourself at all. But I, 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 I do. Okay, so I didn't know if you. Would, I don't even know if that's a goal or if that's it's just sort of a memoir style. Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the show. Yeah, I, to actually spell that out is um, kind of a, a, a moment of um, of uh, it's it's a shameful moment, but yes. I, I'm in every single episode. Um, but are you asking how to actually apply it to real world important? I, that's what I was so afraid of being asked, actually. Oh. I didn't know if maybe, I mean, I'm definitely going to take more things. But I hope, I'm, but I wouldn't necessarily insert myself in the same way that maybe I would just use my subjects or my, you know, not necessarily hire actors to act them up. Right, right, right. I don't know. I mean, maybe my question is on points, but I just, mm. I don't know. No, maybe I don't have a point either, so. Um, I, I didn't know if maybe there or maybe other listening that you've done where you've seen, um, you've heard, uh, you know, similar strat, you know, similar way that you approach the material, but you're always inserting yourself in other ways. I think, yeah, I think it's kind of part and parcel, though, with, with the material, I kind of feel like. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know. Nothing, nothing, uh, I don't know. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. What's the point of doing um, any of it? I, I'm sorry, I should also say you, you don't have to even say that you're going to take anything away from this. You don't have to say that. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Why do it, like, why do real interactions instead of writing it? Why do you mean, like, actually have conversations on the. Why, why not now? Why not write? Actually, hear the conversations. Because, uh, well, like in the case with the, the the dialogue that I just did with my dad, where I was reading it, I read it because it didn't sound as good. The tape didn't sound as good. But if the tape sounds better than the way that you can write it, then you can go with the tape because there's more of a visceral. You know, it's more exciting to hear tape. Um, so yeah, that's that's it. I mean, if you have the tape and it's better than the way that you can write it, then. Uh, I think that kind of common sense dictates to just use the tape, you know? It's there, it's, it's, it feels real. Yeah. So, with your own show, I, I like the idea of, of the, the necessity of the legal peg, um, but you're, I assume, kind of the boss 
And so do you ever get tempted to run with a shakier framework or peg because you can do that now and you don't have to convince other people and then get yourself into trouble? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, all the time. I mean, I feel like the, the thing is I have to listen to the show when it airs and uh, it could be very painful when it, when it stinks and, and it's nauseating. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, sometimes, um, sometimes, uh, you end up having, or I feel like I end up having a lot of, uh, cause sometimes when you actually have, um, uh, a, uh, when you start kind of with a framework, uh, a kind of story that you have to observe, you can kind of, again, that could be a kind of Trojan horse also that you could fill with all the magic and all the, the, the things that, and all the great writing and the jokes that you want to tell. But when you have to create the whole thing, um, it can, yeah, it can be kind of existentially different. Yeah, and eyeing. And sometimes it works better than other times. But uh, in terms of like trying to like cheat because I'm the boss, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel that way so much. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sure. Can you uh, talk about your editing process? <coughs> a sense of a bit of a high wire act where you're crafting a half an hour. Sure, sure. You're talking about the actual, the physical, the editing of the tape. Yes. Well, like, okay, for instance, how, with how the. How do you balance all your, your blocks and your ideas? Um, or make the story arc last the half an hour or something? Um, Wait, uh, so you're talking about assembling the whole, it's always different. Some stories, some shows are just all like a half an hour of writing. Uh, some, I feel like the best ones actually to me, like the holy grail I feel is, is to try to uh, achieve a kind of, um, a, a feeling of uh, where the telephone conversations, it, where it feels as though they're organically coming off the script. Like it's all kind of flowing in and out of each other and it has a kind of stream of consciousness feel where I'm talking, I'm writing about something and I'm talking about a curiosity about something and that kind of like just slips into, bridges into a telephone conversation which is the offshoot of the thing that I was talking about and then slips back into this kind of uh, interior monologue. That's, that's, that's pretty much what I'm, but then there's other ones that there, where there's no writing. Like the one about the books I was talking about, it just goes tape to tape to tape. Um, and the actual, um, the actual editing of the tape, I was gonna mention that the, the little clip there of my mother getting the olive stuck in the bathtub drain, um, which is like, I don't know, it was like 15 seconds between the two of them, it, but it was like tons and tons of, uh, of recording. Um, and at first, actually, I tried to do it separately. I recorded my father, um, and I was trying to get him worked up. Uh, and, you know, they're not actors. And which is also, it's uh, amazing is that, um, and almost, uh, when I saw what a good actor my mother was, it kind of felt, it, it made me feel almost as though my entire childhood was like some kind of social experiment. Whereas like I felt like she could just turn it on and off, like the role of her, you know, the role of Dina Goldstein. Um, and you know, so these are people who never took any drama classes or anything, but they just have, na they're natural performers and in a way they kind of perform their relationship with each other. And it was just a matter of like turning on a mic. Um, but in that case, yeah, my father couldn't, get it, couldn't do it, but when I actually had my mother in real time come down the stairs from the bedroom where she was lying in bed and actually like just start screaming in the background, it all like just clicked into place. Um, but there was a lot of takes, there was a lot of like, you know, and, and I feel like radio is a great medium for um, micro-editing, uh, uh, hopefully decent real sounding performance out of non-actors because you can really, um, 
you could really cut cut it really, really carefully in a way that I don't think you could do with other media. So I think it lends itself to uh, non-actors, yeah. Um, what, what do you think is a distinct difference between what you're doing at Wiretap and what you, what you did at This American Life? I mean, how much intervention was there, or maybe truncation of your ideas? I don't know if they're truncated. You mean, uh, um, I mean, do you have more freedom now to do what you're doing? Does it feel like it's wide I, open? Yeah, connecting to what you were asking, yeah, I do have more freedom. And sometimes, you know, like to, uh, this isn't probably the right metaphor, but I like strangle myself on the rope of freedom. Doesn't make sense. But um, yeah, there was parameters like uh, uh, at This American Life, which I feel like I benefited by um, what I got to do. I mean, I don't know, I can more freely lie, you know what I mean? It's not, uh, uh, I feel like that's the bottom line for the show that I'm doing right now. It, I don't feel philosophically any which way about whether I lie or I tell, it, the bottom line I feel is to, be, to try to be entertaining and uh, to try to be true, to try to get at some truth regardless of whether um, I'm literally saying the truth or I'm actually, uh, uh, there was a line that Homer Simpson used on The Simpsons for uh, fiction, which was, uh, right, for when he was saying that he was lying, he was uh, making fiction with his mouth or something like that, so. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just curious if you see any, um, or if you've heard any sort of uh, use for the sort of techniques you're demonstrating here if you're, let's say, a, an education reporter in a big city. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's, the, that's the thing that I was dreading, having to, uh, real-world application. Um, I don't know. Uh, Alex, are you back there? Do you have anything to, I mean, you're a serious reporter, a serious man. Is there anything that you could take away as a serious reporter and a serious man from? There's nothing. Yeah, that's okay. Um, oh yeah. Putting ourselves into pieces really improves stories. Even if like reporting on the science and the environment, like I do, I, I sometimes I, I put myself into pieces, yeah. and, and it's really helped. And I think that you you you're marketing your personality in a way, and that's a great thing for your show. But I think that. We as reporters can have personalities too, to some extent, I'll grant you within reason, but that might be something that I, I know I take away from your job. Oh, and also, actually, I could say this. Like, I've had conversations uh, for stories that uh, were like it felt as though, again, like something was happening in tape, where I'm talking to someone on the phone for an actual interview, but they're in the midst of, they're like, hang on a second, and they're like yelling at their mechanic about something. And it's totally peripheral, but it has that feeling of like things happening. Um, and it makes it feel more real. It has that kind of feeling of like, you know, in Law and Order, where there's a lot of talking, a lot of talking, but they always have someone doing something. Like someone's, you know, giving their alibi for a murder, but they're like blow drying their hair or, you know, something like that, like completely crazy. But yeah, it could have that kind of dramatic effect. Uh, yeah. I'd like to answer your question for you. Sure, go ahead. Um, what you offer that I think is applicable to every radio journalist who's working in hard news is that we, by insisting on personality being first and foremost in radio, uh, I would look at every time you decide who to put in your piece, you're casting that person with personality first and foremost. The information that a person offers in an interview is secondary and usually best uh, presented by the reporter and do it much more succinctly. Mm -hmm. But what you're looking for in tape is always the ineffable, unique, the funny, the thing that can only be expressed by your source. Mm. 
And so I think that's your message that's universally applicable to That is exactly what my message is. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you for, uh, yeah. And then along the same lines, because yeah. I've taught children, teenagers, in a couple different mediums, I think to keep kids jazzed and to get them jazzed is to say that you, you as your own person, matter. What do you want to say? What interests you? And so I think that you do that. I think you're um, encouraging people to kind of explore creativity and, and not color inside the lines so much. So I think that's great for students, personally. Oh. That's, yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, this is a little thing, but you, you can always roll the tape as we're, you know, from the time you get out of the car and approaching the interview. Mm -hmm. If they have to take a break to take a call, whatever, always let the tape run and then have the tape running on your way out. Stop and chat with people because you never know when something real that could possibly work in your story or a different story is going to happen. And uh, since we're not using you know, cassettes and real paper and stuff anymore, there's absolutely nothing possible. Take us a second back to work to do that. Um, and yeah. Oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. It feels it, it it kind of opens the vent. You know, it opens a window. It it feels real. There's um there's a monologue I'm reminded of that Joe Frank did. Uh, we're in the midst of it. He says, uh, "I'm just going to go uh, make myself some tea," and then he puts up some music and brings down the music, and he comes back and he just made himself some tea, and it just felt like. You know that that the story is 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 being told not in some kind of uh, disembodied uh, space, but it's you know it's a, it's a, it's there's a feeling you're admitting into the story, the real world. Yeah, um, I was going to say first of all that one of the best interview clips I had, I was interviewing a state politician over the phone, and in the middle of the interview, he's like going through the drive-through at Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. We we ended up using that oh, during the fun drive, <laughs> like you know, just one of these crazy random things that oh. we never got to air other words. Um, where do you kind of draw the line between kind of self-indulgence and, you yeah. know, how do you know that these I things aren't just fascinating? I don't. <laughs> Are you no, worried I mean, about that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, tons. And, uh, yes, I do. I do. I'm worrying, actually, you're watching me worry about it right now. In fact, yeah, I do. Uh, and, uh, I don't know. I feel like some, some episodes I do a better job. You just make sure I mean, I other feel... people get to listen to you to give you feedback so you know... I mean, a lot of, yes, and a lot of it is also, like, I do try to, in the interviews, I don't know if you could, if, if there's examples of this, but by default, I've sort of also become, like, the, the straight man, um, uh, like, just kind of setting the ball up on the spike so that the personalities that I'm talking with can kind of be funny and do that kind of thing, because, I f you know, um, you can't always have... Uh, you know, like the, the analogy of like having, you can't have two lead guitars or, or, you know, in a band, although maybe Nazareth did, I don't know. Um, so you kind of like, I end up kind of taking the, the back seat and I think that sometimes, um, you know, keeps it real. Yeah. Are you recording right now? I don't, not that I'm aware of, no. I think they record all of it. Oh, do they? No, I mean, oh, am I recording? A future show. With this right here, no. No, this is like too much of a glimpse behind the curtain <laughs> that no one wants to see. Yeah. So, um, in, when you play the straight man, mm -hmm. do you pick characters who like attack you in a way that's yes. funny? So, yeah. I mean, it probably wouldn't be very funny for you to like describe why it's funny to you, but I mean... Why it's funny for me? Well, I mean, not that it's... I mean, I love it, I must say. I actually do love being attacked. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, um, 
yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to really, I'd have to think about that. I mean, I do also, I like playing an asshole, too. And I do, I, and when I first started off the show, I did more of that. But I feel like it would have been harder to sustain, like, to just be that guy and come back every week and be that, you know? It would have been more difficult. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not sure. Exactly. I'd have to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever hear yourself when you're listening back to your tape and, and hear that you're not sounding authentic? Like you don't sound... Does anyone know what I'm talking about when you're listening back to your tape and you can hear that you are aware that you're, you're recording yourself in yeah, an interview? Yeah. Does that... What, what would you do about that and how do you kind of remind yourself when you're in an interview to stay right there and stay authentic and not be thinking about the fact that you're using yourself in the story? I'm not sure. Um... But I do, I do know what you're talking about, and I do hear that. Um, and uh, I do, yeah, I mean, it's a shock for the first few years because you hear yourself in your own head as sounding like a particular kind of thing, and then you hear, you know, and then you hear yourself. I mean, you feel like you're maybe, you're, you're sounding like Joe Frank, and you listen back to yourself, and you sound like this little Jewish pipsqueak, um, which, is, which is sometimes unsettling. But uh, um, in terms of trying to keep it real in that way, I think, when I start, well, you know, again, like I do these little radio plays, um, and so it's not like a big stretch from, I think, when I'm giving direction to them and all of a sudden, like, you know, I don't even think about it that much, actually. Like, I'll just, I'll say what I am uh, have to say in order to set up the scene, and then I'll say, uh, you know, I'll be like, blah, 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 you're gonna say this, and then, okay, now I'm gonna go. So, uh, and, and I just, I don't know, I, I'm like, so wh why are you getting a, why are you getting a mohawk? What, why are you getting, a, you know what I mean? That's my line. And that's me acting, um, so I'm sort of acting. I think is a thing, um, and I'm and I'm trying to and 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 the person that I'm um, performing is is a kind of version of myself. So I feel like I've gotten fairly like used to being that person on the radio. Yeah, I don't know. Kind of, kind of related to that. I mean, I've recorded conversations just with me speaking to family or friends, and then conversations when I'm like speaking to someone I don't know, and and. I have trouble making it all sound like a conversation. Like when I'm just speaking to family or friends, it's clearly a conversation, but other times it just sounds more like an interview. And I just have trouble just making things with people I don't know, more formal things, just sound like conversation. All right, yeah. Because you're thinking, I mean, you're thinking as a radio producer as you're doing it and you're structuring it in your mind a little bit and you're. Yeah, trying. It's a solution, and the. You didn't get recorded when you did that. No. Three for one. I'll remember that. Okay, one, one. One, one. Uh, yeah. Um, can you talk about how you would pick something that seems like the beginning or end of the Silvermaster story? Mm -hmm. I mean, if it only exists as a radio piece. I think why not? Yeah, I mean it's again like it's a it's a cheap medium, and if you have faith in it and you just don't feel like on paper it sounds that compelling, then make it, um, and uh, you know and see and see, you know see w w what what you could do with that. It's almost like after you made it, you could pitch it. I'm sorry. It's almost like after you made it, then you could pitch it, but before you made it, you couldn't. Right, or maybe you didn't know exactly what it was going to sound like. Yeah. Did you find that after they were breaking up with you in whatever way, you know, because they're basically making it up, right? Uh -huh. They're the reasoning behind it and all that. Did you, um, did it affect your relationships with them? No, and, I didn't know it. I mean, didn't it ever go like, oh my God, is 
is it true? You know, is it, like, did you ever think that any of it was like... Oh, yeah, like they're actually talking to me? Yeah, a little bit, and I like that. There was actually one great moment in one of the breakups that uh, someone was doing with me where in the middle of, it was, uh, this woman I'm friends with was breaking up with me and in the middle of her giving me this kind of compassionate speech, she got call waiting and she totally went with it. She was like, oh, hang on a second, call waiting. And then like, and then she came back on the line and she was like, yeah, but it, the call waiting was real and it was a nice uh, little serendipitous thing to happen, yeah. No, I mean, if I would feel that way, I would feel like it's good actually, so I would, you know, it would be kind of like, I would, if I got that feeling, piggybacking that feeling would be the feeling of, this is gonna be good radio if, I'm, if it's actually stirring that in me. Yeah. Um, if, there, if there isn't anything else, I think maybe we have to, uh, we have to get out of here. Thank you. Oh, thank you, thank you. Thank you very much.